good morning, church. Morning, Lancaster campus. Good morning, Myerstown as well. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And so turning there, you know what this means. Uh, this series was a study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Can you believe it? It's here. The final Sunday of Echoes of Eden. Echoes of Eden, echoes of God's truth, echoes of God's promise, echoes of God's word that is ever before us. Today we're on this, echoes of confusion and clarity. Say it with me, confusion and clarity. Say it one more time, come on. Confusion and clarity. It's been said confusion and clarity are opposing forces. Confusion and clarity are opposing forces. Not exactly sure who has said these things, but they have been floating about. Confusion is paralysis, while clarity is power. Come on, have you heard this? Clarity is power. Clarity is power. If you've been around the leadership world any length of time, this is preached everywhere. Clarity. You want to get something done, you need clarity. But what is confusion? Confusion is paralysis, while clarity is power. Confusion, what does it bring? It brings frustration, while clarity is what? Clarity ought to bring focus. Confusion brings paralysis. Anyone here hate to be confused? Come on, raise your hand if you hate to be confused. Like, this is the one thing, like, you want to get me? Uh, you want my kryptonite? You want to drop me to my knees? Like, that feeling of being confused, not being able to figure things out, looking around at others around you, like, they seem to know what's going on. Like, what in the world am I missing? Like, what is my problem? Anybody been there? Anytime that happens to me, I go right back to the first grade, and all of these insecurities of the first grade start piling up upon me. Come on, y'all remember first grade? No. It's awful. First grade is awful. At least that's how I remember the first grade. I was confused all the time. Oftentimes, on the way to class, I would literally get lost from the bus to my classroom. More times than not, that poor principal standing at the door had to grab me by the forehead and kind of point me uh, in the direction of the door where my classroom was. Remember being confused to the point of complete frustration all the time. Come on, have you been there? Have you had that like pit in your gut, tears in your eyes, like that angst of just being lost and not knowing what it is that's going on around you? This was my poor five-year-old space cadet life. Like, well, glad to see you haven't grown out of it. Sweet. Literally, I was unable to focus. I'd get lost, like I said, going to class. I couldn't follow simple instructions from the chalkboard. Yes, we had chalk back then. I was so lost. If confusion, by the way, if confusion is the first step of knowledge, my only hope was this. If confusion was the first step towards knowledge, I was right on the cusp of genius. I remember being pulled out of class and going a number of tests. You know the tests, the simple tests, like dog house, airplane. I remember thinking to myself, what is happening to me? I remember going uh, another time being pulled out of class and getting the, getting the uh, ear, earphones put on the ears and the beep, beep. Remember that? Like, beep. 
I think it's this year, you know what I mean? I, I had the hearing test, I had all these things kind of come on over me. And then finally, finally, it was actually right around Easter, right around Easter Sunday, where they thought my mom noticed something when I went, to, went towards my Easter basket and she realized, what in the world? Can you not see that? You see, somewhere along the line, somebody thought, well, maybe we should check this poor kid's eyes. I'll never forget the moment when the world came into focus. I'll never, forget the world, I'll never forget the moment when they put these things upon my face and all of a sudden, that which was creating chaos and calamity and paralysis in my, in my life, this idea of, understand, if you've never been able to see before, you don't know that you're blind. I was seeing double and triple stigmatism, had my eyes all out of shape, but this moment of empowerment that came upon me when confusion was turned and let loose and gave way to clarity. Come on, friends, clarity is power. Clarity is power. From that moment on, the moment I placed those glasses on my face, I began to love school. I was able to focus. I was empowered to begin to excel. It's our prayer for this series. Our prayer for this series is this, is that it's brought some form of spiritual clarity into your life. That it's opened your eyes and it's enlightened you to see God's word with a greater focus. If you're anything like me, there have been some moments where like, I didn't even know I didn't see that. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that I needed to see that. But now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it. And all of a sudden, the Bible and the world is beginning to take new shape and new light. Have you experienced that? Oh, it's my prayer. Why? Because you see, confusion is paralysis. Confusion brings frustration, but clarity indeed brings focus, and it empowers us in our lives. Confusion is paralysis, while clarity is power. And similar to blurred vision, indeed, is also, I've also learned recently, uh, similar to blurred vision is the chirping of multiple voices. Have you experienced that? And so recently I was reminded of, uh, of the peril and the paralysis of multiple voices. How many of you have a love-hate relationship with your GPS, by the way? How many of you have a love-hate relationship with it? Raise your hand if you have a love... Okay, maybe you don't even think about your GPS like this at all. So maybe that's going to help make my point. Uh, um, I, uh, I love to hate my GPS and I hate that I love my GPS. That's my love-hate relationship with it. Like it's kind of like one of those things, like no one is like proud of having to use a GPS, by the way, but we're so glad that it's, that it's in, in our lives. And so like when my GPS is working, like I, am, I couldn't love her more. Like I couldn't love her more when she's, when she's t- giving me the right directions. But the other day, not that long ago, I learned that she is not always my friend. Can you remember life before GPS, by the way? Could anyone, anyone remember life before GPS? If you've ever been lost staring at a map with that pit in your stomach, right? Trying to flip this thing around. Kids, there was this thing called a map. It's awful. If you've ever been there, you know the power that comes out of this GPS, which usually brings clarity. Like this is a power, there there is great dignity that's been preserved in the lives of all humans by not having to stop at gas stations any longer and ask for directions. It's huge. 
But you see, not that long ago, this episode that was coming across uh, my, my speakers and my, my car was, all of a sudden, she started to repeat herself more than normal. Anybody say your GPS repeats yourself way too much? Like, way, she talks way too much. Like, I got it the first five times. You told me to turn right in five feet, now four feet, now three feet, now. She was doing that even more than normal. And then things got even more weird when all of a sudden I'm driving down the highway at the appropriate speed. That's honest, by the way, what I perceive to be the appropriate speed. So I'm driving down the highway at the appropriate speed when all of a sudden the GPS tells me to take the next exit and then right after that says, stay on the current route for X number of miles. And I was like, what the world is happening? Like, how is this possible? There's like a demon in my phone or something. That's not, that's a different sermon. That's not theologically accurate. It's, a, it's an illustration. <laughs> and I began to think to myself, like, what, like, what is, you talk about paralysis. You talk about confusion. You talk about a moment of shock. I looked at Robert, like, what did you do? Well, of course, of course, say of course, of course it was operator error. Of course, it was my fault. You see, what actually happened was I had two GPS apps open at the exact same time going to the same destination, but I, put, I picked two different routes. You see, friends, one of the goals of this series is to alleviate the, multi the, the multiple voices, to remove the voices of distraction, to remove the route that isn't appropriate. To close the apps that are unhelpful in our lives, to turn off the voices of confusion and focus on God's word for the clarity that it brings. And we started this series by asking some very fundamental questions. And this was the opening proposition of the entire ordeal. The path of our future is found in the truth of the past. The answers to most life's most pressing questions can be found in the pages of this book. Do you believe that? Say amen. The answers to life's most pressing questions can be found in the pages of this book. But here's the amazing thing. In the oldest and the most ancient pages of this book, You see, the direction for our future resounds in the origins of our past, that true clarity for today can be found by focusing closely on that which echoed from Eden. And so now consider it. Think of the questions we asked when we started this series. Where did we come from? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Who am I? You're a person created in the image of God. You were born, you were created to be a child of God. That's that longing, that's that hole, that's that empty nag that is tugging upon you. You were created in the image of God. This is Genesis chapter 2. And until we come to realize that and accept the truth of God's grace that draws you back in relationship with him, that is what you're feeling, who you are, where do you come from in the beginning, God, who am I? You're a person created in his image. What went wrong? Sin entered the world at the fall, Genesis chapter three. 
Is there hope? Yes. It's found in the promised Redeemer, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What about the character of God in the midst of all of this? Is he good? Is he holy? Is he just? Is he gracious still? Yes. See Genesis chapter 4 and 5. Come on, how do I find my purpose? Do I have a purpose? How do I, how do I find my purpose? Come on, see Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Look at the call of Noah. You answer the call of God, and then you walk with him all of your days. Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And now this life-dominating question, is this all there is? Is this all there is? Is this all there is? No. Genesis chapter 9 reminds us as God hung his bow in the sky that he is sovereign over all things, that he has made a promise. He will fulfill it in every way and in his time. This book, it answers it all. Why am I here? Where did I come from? Who am I really? What went wrong? Where is my hope? Who actually is God? How do I find my purpose? Is this all there is? And now this, where is this thing all going. We've learned, and nearly every text in these first 11 chapters has ended with that being answered. The Messiah will come. He will redeem the nations, Genesis chapter 10. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will remove all confusion and restore clarity upon the earth. This is chapter 11. And now, and now, and now we look forward to knowing this. One day, all things will be as they were meant to be in the beginning. It all echoes. It all echoes. Everything we see is an echo of this one truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so friends, today we're on this, echoes of confusion and clarity, echoes of confusion and clarity. In pursuit of clarity, we have one more famous passage of scripture. Even if you've not been around Bible world all that long, you've probably heard of the story about the Tower of Babel. Say Babel. Now say Babel a few times. Babel, 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 Babel. That's the story right there. That's where we're headed. Out of, confusion of, out of the confusion of Babel, the Lord's going to bring clarity. You see, confusion echoes our need for God's clarity. Confusion echoes our need for God's clarity. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And now before we read the passage, what do we got to do? What do we got to do? What do you need? Say context. Because context is the power to unlocking the truth in any text. And so, and so Kaz, uh, who, wrote, uh, who wrote Genesis? Say Moses. Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis to whom? To whom? To whom? Ross Garrett? Who does? Just say the people of Israel. The people of Israel. And so, Myerstown, I'm looking at you now. You can answer out loud up there. What is the context? What are the God's people doing? They're wandering in the wilderness. Say wandering in the wilderness. Pastor Nate, check them. God's people are wandering in the wilderness after coming out of the Exodus. They've been in 420 years of Egyptian captivity. The plagues, God's sovereign power has fallen upon. They've been released from that slavery and oppression. They've come through the parting of the Red Sea. They watched those, their, their enemies and adversaries get swallowed up in the flood. They've now wandered in the wilderness all this time. Quail, manna, the whole thing. Moses has gone up to the Mount of Sinai and he's come back down with the law. 
And now they're standing on the cusp of the promised land. You've heard this every single week, but it's crucial to our understanding. They're standing at the cusp of the promised land. Moses knowing he's not going to go in, but the next generation is going to have to go in. Led by the mighty commander, Joshua, they will go in. They will take the land, but he's not going in. So guess what he's doing? He is writing the Pentateuch under the power of the Holy Spirit. He's orienting them in God's truth so it is preserved and it's never lost. It'll be in God's canon for all of eternity for God's people to read. He's orienting them. When he is gone, they will have God's truth to trust in. And what is he helping them understand? The same God who created the heavens and the earth created the promised land. The same God, the same God who placed Adam and Eve in that promised land is going to deliver you there as well. The same God who extended grace to Adam and Eve will extend it to us. The same God who banished Cain will banish the adversaries of Israel out of that land. The same God who showed grace to Adam and Eve through the line of Seth and blessing his name is still blessing the line of the Messiah. The God who called Noah out of corruption is the same God who is calling you and I. The same God who who Noah hoped in is our hope. The same God who made his covenant with Noah will keep his promise also to us. The same God who brought forth the nations from Noah is the same God who's already chosen for the nation of Israel before they go in that land. He's already determined their victory. And now today we're on this, the same God that confused and spread out the nations has chosen the one that's about to go in the land to reach all the people who have been dispersed. Do you see it? And it's all unfolding right before our eyes. It's all unfolding even unto this day for our future finds its sustenance in the echoes of the past. Genesis chapter 11. How did the earth get this way? Why are we all spread out? Why do we all have different languages? Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And God said, behold, behold, they are one people and they have all gone, they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they have purposed to do will now be impossible for them. So God says, come, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth that they, and, they, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole earth. Echoes. 
Echoes of confusion and clarity. Confusion echoes our need for God's clarity. Out of confusion now, God clarifies our need for him. He clarifies our need for him, and he clarifies our need to do and to take three actions. Here's the first one. What does Babel teach us? What does it echo into our hearts today? This, the peril of sin. Friends, we need to realize the peril of pride and sin. We need to realize the peril of pride and sin. Look at the text, verse 1. Now the whole earth, now the whole earth had one language. The whole earth had one language and the same words. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And at first glance, you could just run right by this. You're like, oh, okay, so the earth had one language and, and, many, and many words. But if you've been following along in our series, you see any issue with this? Anyone? Anyone? See last week's message? Didn't we just study last week that um, out of the name of Noah would come all the nations? And haven't we already in the text seen where all of those nations have dispersed? Didn't we see the line of Shem and the line of Japheth and the line of Ham? And aren't they already in their places? Do you remember? Do you remember this? Remember how they were dispersed? Remember? Come on. Verse 5 of chapter 10, it says this, verse 5, verse 5 of chapter 10, look what it says. And from the coastland, the people spread into their lands, each with his own language. What? Each with their own clan, each by their own nations. How did the people spread out? How did they, how did they gather? By their lands, by their language, by their clans, by their nations. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, by their languages, by their what? By their language. This is chapter 10. This is already, what is happening? By their lands and by their nations. Now verse 31. Come on, folks. You've got to be students of the Bible. What is happening here? These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, by their languages, by their lands, and by their nations. Do we all see it? Verse, chapter 11, verse 1 now says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Like, it's like, uh, chapter 10, here you go. Oh, wait, just kidding. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Say no. Is the Bible in chronological order in this respect? Say no. Uh-oh. Is that a problem? Say nope. Is that a problem? No, say, say it again, because that's fun. Is, is, that, is that a problem? Nope. It's not. It's the same thing we've already seen Moses do in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Guys, you got to know these things. These are the kind of things that people throw up about the Bible being kind of being contradictory against itself. It's very simple what's happening here. Just as in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heaven and the earth. He goes through one through six days, ends on the seventh. And in chapter 2, what does he do? He says, all is not good, right? i got to create, right? He creates the account of creating of, of man and woman in chapter 2. And what did we learn about that? He's, Moses is going back and giving us greater detail about the creation account and what actually occurred on day 6. He's simply rewinding the tape to orient us with a little more detail on what's just occurred. So he says, look, I've just told you the whole story of Noah. And I wanted to complete my thought, my entire thought about Noah and how it all results, how out of his name come all the nations. Now, I've told you where they're all spread out, but what I need you to know now is this is why they're all spread out. I gave you the whole story. Now I want to give you, come on, Paul Harvey fans, now I want to give you the rest of the story. So here it is. 
But the good and logical question is, well, with Genesis chapters 1 and 2, like we were able to go back and be like, oh, that happened on day 6. I wonder when Babel happened. Anyone have that question? Like, how long after the flood was Babel? Anyone know? Anyone? Awesome. The Bible seems to tell us. Did you see it in the passage? Did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see it? If you did, tell me where, because I missed it in these verses. But in chapter 10, but in chapter 10, look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 25. Look at it, look at it. God tells us. To Eber, which is the forefather of the Hebrews, were born two sons. Look, look, look. The name of the one son was Peleg. For in his days, the whole earth was, the whole earth was, the whole earth was what? Divided. You know what Peleg's name means? His name literally means to disperse. It means to divide it, be divided. So it appears the Tower of Babel occurs within two generations of the flood. You see, Shem came off the ark. He had his son, Eber. Eber had Peleg. And in the generation of Peleg, within two generations of the flood, we're building a tower for our own name's sake. You see this? What's the point? Why are we drawing this out? What's the big idea here? Look, two generations is a short enough time where everybody remembers the instruction of God. There is no excuse for ignorance here. Anybody remember God's instruction when they got off the boat? Say it wasn't a boat. It's not a boat. It's an ark. Do you remember God's instruction when they came off of the ark? Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. See it for yourself. God spares Noah. God spares his sons. God spares the wives. God spares. God extends grace. He brings them to the waters of judgment out on the other side. Noah gives an offering of worship unto the Lord and the, 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 they would have all been gathered round and they would have all heard what God said. God blessed Noah, listen, and he blessed his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, now this, and fill the earth. Fill the earth. Fill the earth, all right? So if you're all, imagine you're all gathered out in the lobby. Uh, it's prior to service now. And, and you and, 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 and Lisa uh, or, or Jared now comes over the announcements. And they say, okay, friends, when you come in to the worship center, I want you to fill it. I want you to fill the worship center. And if you all come and gather in this center section, would you have done what you were instructed to do? Say no. That's what's happening here. You see, they were to honor the Lord by spreading out and filling the earth. That's what God asked them to do. But look at verse 2. And as the people migrated from the east... As the people migrated from the east, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. When the people traveled from the east, by the way, when you see east in Genesis, it's typically not a good thing. When you see people moving from the east or toward the east, east somehow or another seems to be a trigger word to say, uh oh. It's not so much which direction they're heading, but it's the trigger of the east. From the east, toward the east. When you see the word east, go, you read, watch, watch. When you go back and look through, 
Adam and Eve. East. Angels guarding at the east. Abraham and Lot. East. Here are the people. What? Coming back from the east. East is kind of the symbol that you're moving further away from God as Adam and Eve were moving further away from God. That mean, you know what this means, longtime Christian friends. Our great theologian friend, Michael W. Smith, had it right. Go west, young man. Evil goes east. Go west. Anybody? You didn't know? Now you do. This is a full morning of the rest of the story. Here it is. God says, be fruitful and multiply. What do they do? Not only do they not, not only do they not keep going, they actually like, actually, that plane looked pretty good right there. The word settled, by the way, is the opposite of fill and disperse. The word settle is the opposite of disperse and fill. It means to sit. (laughs) It means to remain. It means to take up residence. It means to become established in that particular place, settle. Now, careful. Let me be clear. Settling, being established, taking dominion, and even building cities is not necessarily the offense here. Because listen, if you're going to fill the earth you would have to settle somewhere along the way, would you not? Otherwise, you're just vagabonds, right? He wants you to fill the earth. And so there has to be some settling of some kind. So the major offense here was not merely the building of a city. For somebody would have to stop along the way as they would travel out and do so. It wasn't settling, but it was the intent of the building of the city. It was the intent of their stopping. It was the intent of their heart, catch it? It's the intent of their heart that makes it abundantly clear that this was a complete act of rebellion against the Lord. Look at verses three and four so we can unpack this. Look, so they found this plain, this plain in the land of Shinar, and they come to settle there. And they said to one another, come on, come let us, come let us, come let us. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Come let us. You heard somebody else use the phrase, come let us? Let us go make man in our image. Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now come on, let us make let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see it? Multiple times, what do they say? Come let us, come let us, come let us. Come on, come let us build a city. Come on, let us build a tower. Come on, come let us make a name for ourselves. Come on, come let us do this thing so that we are not dispersed. We are, what? Come let us was like, hey, come let us. God will be over there. Come let us. This is mankind declaring their independence from God, their creator. Think about it, though. Think about the ignorance of this. Think about the great offense that this is. Everything they have is from God at this point. He just brought them through a flood two generations ago. He just spared them. 
And what has God done for them? Everything they have is from the Lord. Think about it. He's given, who's given them this one language? God. Why did he give them this one language? So they could join their voices in glory and praise unto him. God gave them this one language. God gave them this cultural mandate, which is good. God said, have dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion. Build infrastructure. It's good. He's given them the ability to relate and to unite with one another. Again, this is good. The one language is good. The cultural mandate is good. The ability to relate and unite is good. The ability that God gave them to be industrious, to build, and to fill the earth. Again, this too is good. But they're able to do all of these things. Why? Because God has enabled them to do so. And enabling them, what was this enablement? Why are they able to do what they're going to do? Why are they able to rebel rebel in such a significant way? Why is this such an affront? Because the reason they're able to do all of this is because they're created in the image of God. What's the affront? The people are actually leveraging God's image. How foolish, how prideful, how arrogant of us. Anything we're capable of doing, we've got to take a step back and say, this is only possible. Why? Because I actually bear the image of God. It has little to do with me. All of these gifts were given to them. Why? Why were they created in the image of God? That they would be able to glorify God. That they would be able to relate with God. That they would have fellowship with God and communion with God. He invited them into the divine fellowship on that sixth day. And then they had this holy worship service on day seven. And now what is God, what is man doing? Thank you for the gifts. And uh, thank you for letting us bear your image. But we're out. that which was entrusted to them to bring glory to the Lord. They've now seen how powerful it is and how good it feels to bring glory to themselves. The Babel enterprise is alive and well. The Babel enterprise is ever before us. The enterprise of Babel, what is it about? It's about human independence and self-sufficiency apart from God. Sound familiar? What are, what are they doing? What are they doing at Babel? They're doing exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. What are they doing? They're exercising wisdom and desiring autonomy and power apart from God. This is the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did at the fall. And if you've ever wondered to yourself, what would I do if I was there? What is this? This is all mankind making the same choice as Adam and Eve all together, collectively, in one voice, we're done. You see the offense now? You're like, it's a tower. Like, what's the big deal? It's not just a tower.
Forget about filling the earth with God's image. They want a city for themselves. They want a tower to place themselves in the heavens. Why? You got two reasons why they may want this tower to go to the heavens. Neither one is good. They either want to be like God or above God. Once again, this is the original lie. This is the way of the serpent. This is exactly what Eve was told. You can be like God. You can be like God. Come on, let's build a tower and be evil with God. Be even with God. Let's be like God. Let's be on a level playing field with God. Let's be our own God. Let's bring glory to our own name. They want to make a name for themselves. In other words, they were building this as a memorial to their own glory. Wow. I'm pretty sure we can make our own applications all the way through this. They were doing all of this in direct opposition to God and as an opportunity for themselves. Look what it says. Lest we be scattered. Lest we be scattered. Let's do all this. Let's build a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's show God that we're equal with him. Lest we be scattered across the earth like he says he wants us to be. Let us show him that we're... Are you starting to see the depth of the offense? The Babel enterprise is alive and well. And to top it all off, this verse 3, which seems rather mundane, by the way, it seems rather drab. Like, why is this even in here? I don't really, I don't really understand. Like, and, so, and so the people said to themselves, let us come together, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone, and they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. It's interesting how technology can go to our heads. Commentaries I just seem to disagree on this, but you've got one of two options before us. Come on, you're in the plane. Somewhere around the Persian Gulf or so. Either they didn't have stones, and so they had to create a technology to make one. By the way, Israel, author's intent, Moses is speaking to Israel when he writes this, right? And what does Israel know? Israel know that the Babylonians invented this technology of making bricks. And so what are they saying? We're going to build this thing. Even if we don't have stones, we're going to make our own stones. Or worse, they're actually worse stones, and they're like, you know what? We're going to make them. We're going to do it our own way anyway. And the, the idea here... One of, the, one of the commentaries that I was, that was kind of consulting in this, Ken Hughes, he, say, he suggests this. Moses is actually being a little snarky here by including this verse. He says he's mocking, in a sense, he's mocking the tower builders for making bricks and bitumen mortar. You see, Israel would have known, Israel would have known it would have been much smarter to use stone than to make bricks. And so in a sense, you get this feel that Israel is rolling their eyes at the arrogance of these people who would become the Babylonians. And they would be saying unto themselves, ha, they've got bricks they gotta make, we've got stones, right? Not to mention this for author's intent, what have the Israelites been doing for 430 years? Context. 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 The picture here is humanity at the pinnacle of pride. And that's saying something when you think about what we've studied these first 11 chapters. This is the pinnacle. This is everyone in one voice. This is everybody all, all one. Remember, remember chapter six or so? We could find Noah, couldn't we? Now we're all one voice, all one word. 
But God made a promise, didn't he? God made a promise. He's not wiping out the world with a flood. This is the picture of a pinnacle of human pride. This is the picture of the pride that lives inside of you and me. This is what you and I are capable of outside of Jesus. We should shudder at the thought. We should shudder at the thought because none of us are exempt. How many of us have taken the image of God and squandered it for our own glory? How many of us, like Narcissi, just love to stare in the mirror? How many of us love to look at what we've created and give ourselves a high five? You're beautiful. You're handsome. You're talented. You're skilled. You're strong. You're intelligent. You're smart, and doggone it, people like you. But it's because you were created in the image of God. All the things I just said are true, but they're true because you were created in the image of God. And so when you look at your spouse and see how beautiful you are, you say, thank God, thank you, God. When you complete something, you say, thank you, Lord. When you come to understanding and the confusion is released, what do we say? By God's grace. Lest we be like the rest of all of creation and not have the privilege to experience these things. What is this thing called love? You're created in the image of God. Do you really want to go your own way with all this? What do we do? What do we do? We've all gone the way of our own pride. We've all built our own towers. What do we do? James chapter four, verse verse six warns us, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does verse 10 say? Humble, humble ourselves. We gotta humble ourselves. Fall before the Lord, tear down the tower. It's me, it's me, I'm the builder. Which leads us to the second point. It's simply this. When you realize the peril of pride that exists inside of our own lives, when you realize that spiritually speaking, I live right in this text, I need to release the pursuit of prominence that is ever within me. I always want to be more than I am. I always want to glory in my own self. You see, pride and prominence is driven by three motivations in this text. Take them to the bank. Three motivations drive These people here at Babel, and they drive you and I today. The desire for freedom drives our pride. Let us, let us, let us, the declaring of independence and complete autonomy from God is ever within us. Fame, fame, prestige, renown, and glory for our our own name. It seems like I'm not all up in my own name. Yes, but we do want to be right. We all want to leave a legacy. We said last week about the protection of our own reputation, but to what end? To God's name. Freedom. Fame. What else drives my pride? Fear. 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 Fear of what? Fear of what? Fear of losing my freedom and not having fame. (laughs) 
Fear of losing my freedom and not having fame. Fear. In this particular text, we see it. We see, we see the desire for freedom. We see the desire for fame. We must make a name for ourselves. Let us freedom. Let us make a name. Let us, let us, let us make a name fame. Now this, lest we be dispersed. That's fear. Lest we be dispersed and not, and not have the tower and freedom. Let us, be, let us build this less, lest nobody knows our name. What is the major fear before them? What is it? They don't want accountability and they don't want to be anonymous. They fear anonymity and accountability. And the two of those things go hand in hand anyway, don't they? Think about your own life. When you live anonymously with no accountability, build your tower. How foolish. Like seriously, how foolish are are these folks? How foolish and perilous is this level of pride? Really? Really? Come on. Really, we're going to build a city in God's world that he created without him. Like, you don't think he's going to notice? Come on, really? Are we really going to build a tower that reaches all the way to the heavens? Do we really think in our minds that somehow this physical spectacle is somehow an image or, or a declaration uh, that there is no God or, or that we're an equal playing field with God or, or that somehow we're now above God or, or somehow like God is dead? Do we really? We're really going to raise a structure to elevate our name over God's. Do we really think that we can build our own civilization apart from him and be able to make our own rules without him and his holiness and justice having a word in it all? Really? How foolish, how foolish. This, whoever led this charge had to have been a real Nimrod. Y'all remember Nimrod, right? You ever use Nimrod in, in elementary school? Anyone? Anyone ever used the word Nimrod? Anyone? Anyone? You did? Shame on you. We don't call people names. Nimrod, Nimrod, at least contemporarily speaking, was made famous by uh, the great Bugs Bunny. Elmer Fudd, the great hunter, who would chase after him, and usually just as the bunny was about, just as he outsmarted Elmer, remember what he said? Remember what he called him? Ha, <laughs> Nimrod, right? Remember? Remember? These people, whoever led this charge must have been a real Nimrod. As a matter of fact, yes, he was. Look at Genesis chapter 10. You're like, oh my word, what's about to happen? Look at Genesis chapter 10. Look at verse 8. Cush fathered Say it. Just say it. Everybody say it out loud. Cush fathered. You said it like you didn't like him. You're not going to like him in a minute. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. That's not good. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it says, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. Ek, Ekad, Kalne, in the land of, in the land of, in the plain of Shinar. Come on, friends. 
The idea of making a name for yourself, the idea of mighty men, what does it harken back to? It harkens back to Genesis chapter 5 and 6. It harkens back to the mighty men of renown, the evil men of renown, that horrible society, that horrible civilization that was complete, that brought complete darkness just prior to the flood. That's Nimrod. Guess whose line he's coming out of, by the way? Come on, guess whose line? Anybody, anybody, anybody? Ham. This is, the, this is the carrying out of the curse. This is ha- what's happening is exactly, is exactly what Noah said was going to happen, and here it is. Friends, God's word is just awesome. And see, what do we know? The spirit of Nimrod and the pursuit of Babel is alive and well. The peril of pride is ever before us. We continue to build towers unto ourselves, and what is yours? That's the question today. What's your tower? Humanity builds literal towers. We're becoming really good at building virtual towers. I'm told you can now buy virtual real estate on the metaverse where you can create your own identity and your own avatar and your own life. Social towers, political towers, towers of fame. Anything we place above the Lord stands as a towering idol before him. The spirit of Babel is ever before us. Without Jesus, we are them. And the text reminds us that only God belongs at the pinnacle of prominence. Only God belongs at the pinnacle of prominence. Only God belongs at the pinnacle of prominence. And here is mankind at the pinnacle of their abilities. This is the pinnacle of prominence. They can communicate without any restriction. There's no barrier. There's no obstacles to their vision. Clarity brings power. And Nimrod is giving them a clear vision about where they're headed. The great historian Josephus from the first century actually has recorded in his articles what? That Nimrod's goal was to be able to build a tower in case God was to flood the earth again. It's not going to happen. He'd be able to have revenge back on the Lord. Look these things up for yourself. It's extra biblical. It's not in the text, but what does it do? It serves to tell us that this has been the predominant thought throughout Jewish history. It's ever before us. Only God belongs at the pinnacle. There's no barrier. There's no obstacle. There's no holding back their creativity. They've built a city. They've applied their full effort to building this tower. And what happens next is meant to make us laugh and cry at the same time. What happens next is meant to make us laugh and cry, I believe, at the same time. Look at verse 5. And God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. What is the imagery here? Is that our God had to kneel down to take a look at their skyscraper. Well, would you, if it wasn't so heinous, this is what I hear in my, in my mind. This is how I think. Aw, well, would you look at a little tower? It's a cute little tower. And it is a cute little, they just built a big little tower. It's just a little tower. Neat little tower down there. 
God didn't do that. And indeed, God doesn't sound like that. Because I don't believe in that moment that God was smiling or laughing at all. It's egregious what is before us. The imagery of God bending down to see their skyscraper. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in. We are like grasshoppers in the presence of God. While their folly is laughable, like I said, God is not smiling. And indeed, what does God acknowledge here in chapter, in verse, chapter 11, verse 6? What is he saying? This is the power of unity. Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is, this is only the beginning of what they're capable of. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What is God acknowledging? This is the power of a unified mankind. Friends, what is God revealing to us? We must never underestimate what a society unified around the wrong thing is capable of. This is why we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we declare the good news of truth. This is why we live the gospel graciously before people. Never underestimate the power of a world unified around the wrong thing. And to be clear, God is not wringing his hands. God is not fearful here. God is not saying, oh no, what do we need to do? Quick, go down and give them all a time out in different portions of the earth so, like, so that like, things don't get out of control. That is not at all God's posture here. However, what God is revealing is this. He's revealing how. He's revealing his heart of concern for those who created. God's heart. God's heart is that none would perish. God's heart What is he revealing? If left alone, there would be nothing to stop man's sinful delusion. If left alone, nothing would stop their their spiral of self-centered delusion. And unfortunately, the world has witnessed, the world has witnessed over and over and over again, friends, the peril and the calamity of a unified people around the wrong thing. The carnage, the carnage of humanity unified in a pursuit of sin, lust, prominence, wars, holocausts, genocides, political oppression, murderous schemes, slavery, sin-filled industries. Come on, what is your list? Man unified around the wrong cause. Even now, as we sit here internally and instinctively, we can all feel this pursuit of unified prominence that is ever before us as a people. It lives well and alive within us. Even now, the world moves closer and closer and closer together as barriers of connectivity and communication. Those barriers are continuing to fall. 
Does the world feel any smaller to you than it did a decade ago? Where is it all going? It echoes. It echoes. The answer echoes from Eden. And so God takes action. And here we need to receive the plan and protection of God's promise. We need to receive the plan of protection. God has a plan. And at the front it looks super heavy. But he acts swiftly. Come let us. Sound familiar? Come let us. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. Come let us. That's the one who should say come let us. That's the one who has the authority to act unilaterally with full power. Come let us, God says unto himself. The try. The Trinitarian God, the God who created all things. Let us make man in our image. Come on, let us make man in our image. Come on, let us now. Let us now. As a heavenly father, bring action upon those created in our image. Come let us go down and there confuse their language. In a sense, you have another small measure of decreation, don't you? so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so then the Lord did for them what he had told them to do to begin with, disperse them from all over the face of the earth. And so then what did they need to do? They had to build, they had to stop off, they had to let off building the city. Friends, note this, notice, notice, because of their pride, all the things they feared had now become a reality. Note this, when you act in sin in response to your pride, the very thing that's motivating you will ultimately become your reality. Check it. Look back in your life and think, see how many times that's been true. When pride's your motivation and that's what's driving you, ultimately the very thing that you're running from or striving towards, that thing you're seeking to avoid, ultimately becomes us. Their language is now confused, so their cultural pursuit is gone. They're now dispersed, and so their one great city is no more. There will be, there will be no great name. Their tower was left undone. Why? Because of the swiftness of God's powerful action. He has the authority to act because he is the creator. They're created in his image. God has to act. And every ounce of God's action in this text is a measure of grace for where would they be without God's acting here? For there's no evil that they would not pursue here forward. Let us act. Come on, friends, this is grace by God. How many times has God moved you out of a situation? How many times has God stopped you in your tracks? Scrambled your correspondence, so to speak. How many times has God rescued you from yourself, cut off a conversation, moved you away from a relationship, took you out of that particular scenario? How many times has God acted in this way? 
And when it occurs, it feels harsh, it feels abrupt, but you have to ask yourself, Lord, what are you, what are you doing? What do you have for me in this? How many of us, how many times has God kept us from finishing the building of idols in our lives? Praise God that he has. How many unfinished idols has the Lord saved you from completing? I've gotten a few courses high. Courses? Yeah, right. Try stories. Well, the people wanted to make a name for themselves. They got a name, all right. Babel. Babel. People wanted a name. Well, here it is. Therefore, the name was called Babel. Why? Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Come on, friends. Babel. 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 When you hear the name Babel, what do you think of? Babel. Babel, 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 Babel. You're a babbler. He's just babbling on. Oh, they got a name, all right. But there's great evidence historically that Babel in that time meant gateway to God. Guess what it means now? Confusion. Meaningless. Babel. But out of the confusion, God brings clarity. Out of the confusion, God brings clarity. For here, God's redemptive plan is still unfolding. Every foolish act of man, God, that what is meant for evil, God uses for good. Every act of evil, God even purposes it for good. And so even here, God's plan is unfolding. Every foolish step of man is purposed by God to faithfully fulfill his promise. From here, the God who dispersed the nations because, check this, the God who dispersed the nations because they wanted to make a great name for himself. You know what happens next in the text? There's a genealogy. You know why these Toledotes are here? You know why these genealogies are here? They're tracing the line of the Messiah. Out of the spreading, out of judgment, God judges now them because they want to make a great name for themselves. God then judges. He tears down the tower, if you will. He disperses the people across the earth. Why? Because they want a great name. What is God now going to do? You want a great name? I'm going to choose one person by grace. I'm going to choose one person by grace. I'm going to choose one redeeming face. I'm going to extend grace unto them, and I'm going to make them a particular promise. I'm going to show you how this is done. I am God. I am Yahweh. I am the creator, and I will. And God extends grace to whom? Come on, friends. Abraham. And he says unto Abraham, I will make your name great, and out of you will arise a great nation. And out of this great nation, we will reach the nations of the earth. God had a plan, even in the dispersion. God always has a plan. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Oh my word, think about the context of Moses delivering this to the nation just before going into the land. What has Moses just done? He's given them the whole history about why this land is theirs. 
and how and why they can trust their God to keep his promise. And so the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse you and you and in you, check this, and in you all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God had a plan of grace before he ever dispersed the people. God had a plan of grace for you before he ever created the heavens and the earth. That's Ephesians chapter one. God always has his plan. As for Babel, they too would be used by God. As for the people of Babel, they too will be used by God. They would grow into an empire and oppose God's people. As a means of discipline and chastening, even unto his own people, the Babylonians one day would take God's people captive for 70 years as a means of reproof and correction. The prophet Daniel would write about the demise of the Babylonians even during that 70 years of captivity. He wrote of the fall. He wrote of the end. Echoes, echoes, echoes from the pen of Daniel, which hearkened from the beginning, extend on even still. And through the scriptures, what do we see? Coming out of Babel, what do we see? Through the scriptures and over the course of spiritual history, Babylon has come to symbolize worldly pride, moral corruption, and defiance against God. To this day, the spirit of Babel and the way of the serpent is prevalent and ever before us. The spirit of confusion remains among us, but yet God's prophets spoke. But yet God's prophets spoke. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9 says this, For the time will come, the time, for at that time a time will come, and I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them that call upon the name of the Lord will serve him with one accord. Do you see it, friends? The prophet spoke. It echoes from Eden. A redeemer is coming. The scramble is going to be released. The confusion will be gone. Clarity will be among us. We will once again, with one voice, worship the God who created us to do so. What is God saying? This is Genesis 3.15. Christmas is coming. Out of confusion comes the clarity of the Bethlehem scene. What is God doing? The promised Messiah would come. And this Messiah, this true son of God, the antithesis of Babel, Rather than preserving his freedom, what does he do? He humbles himself, taking on the form of men. Humbling himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. Rather than preserving his freedom, he humbled himself and took on flesh. Rather than make a name for himself, he lived a selfless, sinless life. Rather than throw himself from the height of the temple, he chose rather to be hung high upon the cross. Rather than Rendering judgment, 
in his return, he bore it. And in place of confusion, he brought clarity, sending his Holy Spirit. You see, a day is coming when the confusion will be removed. The day is coming, the prophet said, when we will all hear the truth of God in one voice. And at the departure of Jesus and the descending of the Holy Spirit, we read this in Acts chapter 2. Come on. And now they were dwelling in Jerusalem. Peter was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the disciples were gathered round as well. Devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6. And this sound, and at the sound the multitudes came together and they were bewildered. Why? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all of these men speaking Galileans? What is this? It's a foreshadowing. It's a peek in the window. It's a confirmation that the Yahweh God of the past who, may, who scrambled the nations for their own benefit, who rose up Abraham as a great nation to use Israel through which the Messiah would come one day, this promised Messiah one day. There is coming a day when we will all hear once again from one voice. Let me give you evidence that that one has arrived. Oh my word, we're, they're speaking to us in one voice. And so in Acts chapter 2 is the great foreshadowing of the day that will come in full. You know what we see in Acts chapter 2? It's evidence that Babel was not God's last word to men. It's a promise that Babel was not God's last word to man. Everything's going to end with clarity, friends. As it was in the beginning, it shall be in the end. Sin will be defeated. Perfect unity will be restored among the nations. And while Eden is gone, the echoes of its promise resound before us. Would you stand with me now? The echoes of Eden, the echoes of the promise of Eden resounds before us. What does it hearken? While Eden is gone and Babylon seems to spiritually have taken hold. A day is coming when Babylon will give way, when Babylon will be defeated, when it will all fall. And in its place, a great city. Divine dominion will fall upon the face of the earth. And it will go something like this. What does Genesis echo? What does Eden echo? It echoes this moment. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, preparing as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man now. He will dwell with them and he will be his people. The God, God himself will be with them as their God. He will. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 24. And from the city, and by its light, will the nations, will the nations, will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. And they will bring 
into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And so, Father, this is our charge. This is your promise. This is the revelation of your word. That in the beginning, you created the heavens and the earth. That in the beginning, man fell into sin, but yet you delivered unto us a promise. And from those days forward, you fulfilled this promise that a Messiah would come, a Redeemer would arrive. From the line of Eve, he would come. And in his coming, he would defeat sin and death. He would crush the head of the serpent. And he would offer unto us the newness, the restoration of life. He would remove the confusion and the scales from our eyes that we might see the truth of your glorious gospel among us. And so God, now we, the church, we, the church, are able to be the embodiment of this great Messiah. And so God, now we humble ourselves and with one voice, with clarity of thought, confusion removed, we offer you glory, worship, honor, and praise because you redeemed us and that you saved Saved us from the confusing mess that we once were. God, thank you for coming low. Thank you for living your perfect life. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for being buried and rising again. Thank you for taking my sin and my shame. Thank you for rising again. And thank you for this promise, Lord God, that one day you will return. It echoes. Let it echo in our heart as we move swiftly towards Christmas, we pray. In Jesus' name.